Last week, we concluded chapter 5, and we saw that Paul is encouraging them to see the responsibility that each member of the church should have toward one another. We saw last week that a church is not made up of individual and isolated people, but one people together who love and care and live in accountability with one another for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. So far in this book, Paul has been correcting them and scolding them for sinful problems that exist in this church. Number one, they were dividing the church by their favorite apostles. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. They were also ignoring the sin of a church member that was sleeping with his stepmother. And now we come to chapter 6. And if you think it's been already bad and how can it get any worse, stay tuned. Chapter 6 now deals with yet another problem that Paul needs to address. In verse 1, he writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The word translated grievance here has to do with lawsuits. The next issue in this church is that they were suing one another. One of Paul's issues here, number one, is that they were airing their dirty laundry before a lost world. But it, it's much more than just airing your dirty laundry in the church to unbelievers. And it went more beyond the optics of the situation. It was that the Corinthians were being just like their lost culture, their unbelieving world in, their, in, in Greece. There was... They were no different than the unbelievers who they were living. In first century, Greece was a sue-happy people. Seems no different than today, does it? Frivolous lawsuits were rampant, and people sued each other all the time. And this carried so into the church. And the Greeks sued each other over everything. And now Paul says, in light of that, when you have a grievance against another do you dare? Those are interesting words. How can you dare go to law before the unrighteous, meaning unbelievers? Paul is saying this should not be so. It is not proper for a Christian to sue another Christian, is what he's saying. Why should Christians bring their lawsuits against their brothers before the eyes of an unsaved world? But it's much worse than just suing each other. Because if you skip down to verse 8, and we'll get there eventually. In verse 8, he says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This church is something else, isn't it? I mean, they have no regard for one another whatsoever. The word wrong here is literally to do harm. So here's this, there's supposed to be a church family. Fellowship, friendships, relationships. And they're harming one another. They're doing wrong to one another and even defrauding one another. The word defraud is, means in the Greek to steal. 
So they were stealing and harming one another, and even by these lawsuits. Perhaps these lawsuits had to do with slander as well, or stealing someone else's money by suing them in their own church family. It's hard to have unity when that happens, right? I can imagine the followers of Paul are suing the followers of Apollos, right? Remember, they're already divided. You got Team Apollos and Team Paul, and now they're probably suing the other group in the church. It's craziness here. They were suing one another, defrauding one another, harming one another. And so Paul is going to say in this chapter, simply put, for a Christian to sue another Christian is sinful. That's the problem here. Now, to be clear, Paul is not having in mind here where there is criminal activity. Where there is criminal grievances, criminal activity, those need to be reported to the proper authorities. But these grievances, these trivial issues, Paul will even say, are being brought before the eyes of a lost world. So when a crime has been committed, we have the responsibility to report that crime to the proper authorities, whether they're a Christian or not. Why? Because God has given that lane to government to do. The God-given role of government, as seen in Romans 13, is for justice and to punish the evildoer. So when one person has criminally trespassed and sinned against somebody else in the way that is abusive or against the law, that must be reported because God has given government the authority to deal with those issues. So we're not talking about what some churches do. Some churches misinterpret this passage altogether. And they wind up covering up things that should never be covered up. Paul is speaking here of petty, trivial matters, not criminal activity. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13 about the role of government. Speaking of government, he says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, speaking of government, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So again, leave to government, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And to God's what is God's. Someone asked Jesus, should we pay our taxes? Give to government what is government's. And give to God's what is God's. The same thing goes with these issues in the church. When God has given government the authority to punish the evildoer with criminal activity, then we need to let government operate in that way. And when there's something that is not in the lane of government to deal with, and this is something that the church can work out itself, this is what Paul's going to say, then the church ought to do this instead of airing these dirty, trivial matters before a lost world. And this stems from what Paul says at the end of chapter 5. If you look at the, at the end of verse, um, verse 12 of chapter 5, remember Paul says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
Remember, the whole point of chapter 5 is accountability within the church. That we care for one another. That we love one another. That we will not let each other walk in unrepented sin. And so we hold each other accountable. And God has given the church the authority and the responsibility to love each other in such a way that we hold each other accountable. And so God judges the world. You judge each other, Paul says. Because this is the role that God has given to his people. The church then is to judge or to discern its own matters among its own people. Or not to go to the world and ask them to interfere in these things. When Christians sue other Christians, what we see here is it says much about what we think about what God has tasked us as the church to do and to be involved in. So then you say, well, what do we do when A Christian has, I feel, wronged me in a way that's maybe not criminal, but a way that's not right. Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible addresses that too. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us what to do. And if we were to do this and follow it, there would be a lot less drama. But you know what? The reason why the church, I'm talking general, across the world, is so weak in this is because most churches don't even have a biblical view of church membership. There is no church discipline to speak of. There is no accountability. For most churches, church membership is, let's just see how many people we can get into the door. People are just a number on a roll. Instead of people whom Jesus died for. Instead of people who are responsible to love and to care and to disciple. And to help them pursue holiness in their lives. So the reason this is almost an impossibility in the modern church is because most churches don't even understand what it means to be a member of a church. Or how to handle these things. And in those cases, of course, it's natural. Why should we go to the church? We just go to the world to handle our problems. But if we are to judge each other, as Paul instructs us in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.12, where does Paul get this? Well, he gets it from Jesus. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Well, I'll kind of summarize it here. He says in Matthew chapter 18, the first thing you do if your brother offends you is go to your brother. Instead of just dropping a lawsuit on them, why don't you go to them and see if you can work it out? A lot can be accomplished if you go approach the person who's offended you or you feel has wronged you. Jesus says, if your brother hears you, you've gained your brother. The whole goal here is repentance. The whole goal here is um, restoration. Jesus says, well, what if your brother doesn't hear you? You go to him, you have a problem, he doesn't hear you. What do you do then? Then you take another witness with you. And you approach your brother again. Again, in a world where accountability is just as rare as any other element on earth, it's, it's, this is impossibility. It's like it's a totally different culture. Most churches are so unbiblical, it makes us unreal. You take a witness with you and you approach your brother or sister again. And Jesus says, If they hear you, great. You've gained your brother. What is that but accountability? 
But if he doesn't hear you and the witness you bring with them, then Jesus says, you take it before the church. This is what Jesus says in Romans, I mean, Matthew chapter 18. And you bring it before the church. And what is the church's job then? The church's job then is to decide restoration between the two offending parties. The church then is to act as judge to settle this dispute. Now, I think it's best in the beginning to bring it to the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, to help them help these Christians work this situation out. And then Jesus says, if, if they don't hear the church, then you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And that's where we go back to 1 Corinthians 5 all over again, which is church discipline, which is then, here, here's a person who has sinned in a way against someone else. They will not repent, so you take a witness, and they still don't repent, and then you take them before the church, and they still don't repent. Jesus says you treat them like they're living, like they're an unbeliever. Again, that's the accountability that is missing in so many churches. And again, Christ has given his church the responsibility to handle these things. So when we go to the world to handle our business like this, what are we saying? The church is pointless. God's people can't even take care of themselves. That's a serious issue. Why the church? Because Christ has ordained it to be this way. We are a family. We are responsible for one another. And because we are responsible for one another, we handle sin and we deal with it accordingly to God's word, calling people to repentance. And when there's repentance, we celebrate it. We walk with the person and help them and we resolve the issue because this is at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not revenge. The heart of the gospel is what? Forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance. This doesn't mean that you go to everyone else and air, the, air your grievance against this person. If you're doing that, that's gossip. And then you have sinned in that way. When your brother or sister has sinned against you or you see them in grievous sin, you are to go to them first. That's what Jesus says. We have a book, and the book tells us what to do. And when we don't do things by the book, we get in all sorts of trouble, don't we? But it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. More than a lawsuit? <laughs> I think not. I think not. And again, this is what Jesus has commanded us to do. So... Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? How dare you? How dare you go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And who are the saints? The saints means holy ones. Who are holy ones? Every believer. Every believer in Jesus Christ. So really, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 6 are kind of parallel passages. Paul picks up on the teaching of Jesus and carries it on from there. Now, why does Paul make such a statement? Why does the church have such authority? Look at verse 2. 
Or do you not know? That's a phrase that Paul likes to use in this book. He uses it about 10 different times. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? This is fascinating. So here Paul says on the basis, why should this not make sense to you? Do you realize what God has given you to do? God has tasked his church to judge the world and to judge angels. What does this mean? Good question. Because we don't know exactly for sure what this means to judge the world and judge angels. But we do have some sense of it, I believe. The word judge implies a ruling or a governing aspect to it. Like a judge rules or governs over a courtroom. He has a place of honor, respect, and authority. The implications here are, as the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns in his kingdom, so also his people, the church, rule and reign with him. This is the teaching of the scripture. How will we judge the world? By being co-heirs with Christ. Ruling and reigning with our Savior, the King. He has given His people the authority to do such things. A few months ago, we looked in the book of Daniel, and one of those verses prophesied a time where this would be so. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, remember Daniel Stephen having this vision of the end of days, and he sees the Son of Man, who is a picture of the Messiah, entering the throne room of God, and he sees war on earth, and he sees the saints being trampled on and made war with until a time came when that was no more. And look what it says. Daniel says, as I looked, this horn made war, that's the Antichrist, with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. It is this time where we rule and reign with Christ that I believe we're to be the judge of the world. Jesus also says this to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He says to them, the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. He's talking to believers here. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's a hefty promise. The one who conquers, rules, and reigns with Christ. Also, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says to this church, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over who? The nations. Who's the nations? The world. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear it again, again. Christ gives his people authority over the nations. 
Think this is where Paul's going with this. And in Matthew 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, it always goes back to the throne of Christ, the rule of Christ. This is what I, the connection I'm making here between judging the world. Paul says, you who are going to be judging the world can't handle little trivial cases in your church? Are you that incompetent? Paul says to the Corinthians. Whoa. But not only that, he also says, judging angels. That believers are going to judge angels. Now, I know the first thing that comes into your mind when I say angel is you go to the Hallmark store and you little baby angels and just get that out of your mind. I know they're cute and everything. Just erase it. <laughs> judging angels. What does it mean to judge, judge angels? Well, th- this is another fascinating thing. Oh, we... All, can, all we can do is go to the scriptures for help. For example, and, and I believe this probably refers to fallen angels who are demons. That believers will rule and reign over demons and judging them. For fallen angels await a judgment to come. For example, 2 Peter 2.4 for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So here's these fallen angels who are waiting to be judged. Here Paul says we're going to judge angels. Those two have to have some connection. Also Jude 1.6 and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Here's angels going to be judged in the future. It's fascinating. So at, let's go back to verse 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Paul says, if you're going to judge the world, and you're going to judge angels... How much more then matters pertaining to this life? <laughs> really? You can't handle this? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? What's Paul saying to them? You have a very little view of who Christ is. You have very little view of your role within Christ's body. You have very little view of what Christ has ordained his church to do in relationships and accountability with one another if you go to the unrighteous to help them handle your trivial matters. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Why are you doing this? Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Oh, Paul is calling them out. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Is there nobody in your church wise enough to handle this dispute between these two guys suing each other? You should be embarrassed about this, Paul says to them. Now, I sense a lot of sarcasm in Paul's statement here. Is nobody wise among you? Let's go back a few chapters. You remember that whole debate where Paul was saying about the wisdom of the world and how these Corinthians were bragging about philosophy and human wisdom? Remember, they were bragging and boasting about all these things over the preaching of the gospel and how it's human philosophy and wisdom that win in the end, not truth. And so Paul is saying, I think he's getting on them about this. Is there nobody wise among you that can handle such things? You guys who are boasting about philosophy and wisdom, you can't do this? Huh. Imagine that. What happened to all your wise guys? But even then, brother goes to law against brother. Now, when you sue somebody, the whole point of suing them is what? To win, right? If not, why would you sue? (laughs) You sue to win. But look what Paul says in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. (laughs) You go to win, but when you do, you've already lost. There is no way you can win by suing another believer. When you go to court to win against your brother, you've already lost. You can't win as a Christian in that situation. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. It represents Christ to the world. To have his body fighting against one another is like having your body attack another part of your body. If you punch yourself in the face, who wins? Your hand or your face? Does it really matter at that point? If your feet feels like getting revenge and makes your body jump off a cliff, who wins? Nobody. You've already lost when you fight with one another. It's almost like having, um, you know, when someone gets an organ transplant, sometimes the, the body is not receptive of the transplant and the cells attack the new organ that's in there. Who wins? Nobody. You've already lost. So if you've already lost, look what Paul says next, because this is shocking. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It would be better for you to be wronged and stay wronged if you're going to settle this in court. It would be better for you to be defrauded than think you're going to win in court. 
Again, Paul is not saying to ignore the sin. Paul is not saying to ignore the wrongs of other people. What Paul is saying is, you've already lost if you're going to the world to handle your problems. So what do we do? Matthew 18. Go to your brother. Take a witness. Bring it before the church. That's how you handle things. And if you're not going to do it that way, the way God says so, you might, you, you might as well just stay defrauded because then you've doubly lost. Hmm. If you're seeking to win in a court of law against your brother, then you might have revenge built into you from your own sinful nature. What is revenge? I want to hurt those who hurt me. We're wired like that, aren't we? We're wired to seek justice. We're wired to get revenge or hurt other people as we've been hurt. But again, that is not the gospel. That is anti-gospel. Paul encourages the Thessalonians and says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Hmm. You've heard it said, Jesus says. But I say to you. And Paul also addresses this with the Roman church. In Romans chapter 12, verse 14, this is what Paul says to them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus goes on further to say in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone hits you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other one. If someone steals your cloak, what are you supposed to do? Give them the rest of it. Again, when we seek out revenge, when we seek out justice according to our sinful nature and handle it in a way that is contrary to God's decree, what we are saying then is that we know more than God. And we have a little respect for the authority that God has given his church. But more than anything, we have the example of the Lord Jesus. If there was anyone ever been wronged, it's him. Is there anyone who's received injustice? It is him. By his own people. He came to his own and his own received him not. 
even his followers. Judas, one of the twelve, betrays him. Peter, one in his inner circle of three disciples, denies him in his most needy hour as he's being arrested, as he's being brought to an unjust kangaroo court at night illegally, as he's about to face these false charges. How did the Lord Jesus respond? Because he's our example. He's our example. And this is what Peter admonishes us in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll close with this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Lord Jesus is our ultimate example. Committing no sin, no deceit. When they wronged him, he did not wrong in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We all want justice. And we pray that justice happens in this life. But sometimes that isn't possible. But I will tell you this. When it's all said and done, there will be justice for every single sin ever committed. For the believer, every sin will be dealt with by the body of the Lord Jesus as he hung on the cross as every sin was imputed to him for all who belong to him. And for those who reject Christ, their sin will be dealt with, justice will be dealt with in the lake of fire which burns forever and ever and ever. In this life, it's impossible, it's seeming, to bring justice to some cases. We see the horrific case of what happened in Maine this week. And we wonder, how can there ever be justice to those families who suffered so much loss? It's impossible to give justice in this life. It's impossible to take away that hurt and that pain that those families are feeling. But we know one day, justice will be served. Justice will be served either by the death of Christ for all those who believe or by God's wrath being poured out on sinners in the lake of fire of all who rejected the gospel and the Lord Jesus. No sin gets swept underneath the rug. So, when we feel like taking vengeance, when we feel like repaying harm, 
Let us remember the gospel. Let us remember the example of the Lord Jesus. When we have issues among ourselves, let us follow God's word. Let us not gossip about one another. Let us go to the person who has offended us or hurt us like Christ has commanded. And if you come to me and say, so-and-so did this, I'm going to say, I can't help you unless you follow Matthew 18 and go to that person first. Once you've followed all biblical methods of restoration and forgiveness, then let's talk. Because we get the benefit of the doubt towards each other. We love each other enough to show grace and compassion and forgiveness. And we see the accountability and the value of belonging to a local church and membership as important in dealing with these issues because we are Christ's bride. We are his body. And we must have a high respect for it. And if we're to judge the world and judge angels and rule and reign with Christ, then what can't we handle these trivial cases among ourselves? There's lots to consider in this passage. I wish I had four hours more, but we don't. So we will leave it at that, knowing the Lord will use his word to do what ought to be done in your heart. If you're not a Christian here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus, I pray today that you would understand that message, that Christ died for sinners. He bore the wrath of of God the Father, the wrath that was due for you because of your rebellion and sinfulness. He took it upon himself. So that you can be declared righteous when you place your faith in him. Christ has purchased your salvation fully and completely. You can't earn it. You can't Ever pay God back for what you've done, which is why God sent his son, because he loves sinners, amen? He loves sinners like me and you. And so when we as a group of sinners in this room sin against one another, let us remember the gospel. Let us remember the commands of the Lord Jesus and handle it as we ought to with love and compassion and grace because we care and love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us, God, to apply these principles as sometimes they may be very difficult to handle. God, help us to know what to do. Help us to restore relationships. Help us to repent of sin. Help us to seek forgiveness of those we've offended. Let us have a high view of the church Let us have a high view of who you have called us to be and the authority you have given us. We who are to judge the world and judge angels. Oh God, help us to have the confidence to trust your spirit to do what is right as we love one another as we ought. And continually remind us of the example of the Lord Jesus. And may we follow his steps. In Jesus' name, amen.